This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival 2012. Uh, my name is Grace Sutherland. I'll be chairing this event, which is sponsored by Royal Bank of Scotland. And joining us, of course, are Neil Gaiman and Chris Riddell. Uh, now, as most of you probably know, this event is marking the 10th anniversary of Coraline, which is just one of Neil's many... It's <laughs> 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 just one of Neil's many modern fantasy novels. And to celebrate Coraline's 10th... Uh, 10th birthday, I suppose. Uh, a 10th anniversary edition has been published with beautiful illustrations by Chris, who has also... <laughs> who has also illustrated for the Edge Chronicles and has won a number of awards for his illustrations in the past. Now, I'll not keep you too much longer because if you're anywhere near as excited as me, you just want them to get on with it. But um, I will say that the Chris will be signing some of the books in the tent over next to this one, I think, um, after the event, and uh, there will be some time at the end for the audience to ask questions. So uh, I'm delighted now to hand you over to Neil and Chris. And, um, and, and uh, before, before we start, the, the significant thing that some of you who were listening very carefully may have noticed in what Grace just said is that Chris is going to be signing and I'm not. Um, there, there is a sort of a good news, bad news in that. The good news is I'm here. Um, and there was a brief moment um, in the very small hours this morning when even that was in the balance. Um, but as it is, there's a family emergency that just happened uh, back in America, and that means that uh, I will be heading out to the airport relatively soon. And, uh, and, and going back tonight to, uh, to America, which was not planned. Um, and we tried to figure out ways that would be fair and equitable and make everybody happy, whereby possibly I stood you all in a line and ran along it, <laughs> just scribbling faces, hands, T-shirts, um, outstretched things, and then went, this is not actually going to work. There are too many of you. People will be disappointed. It is actually easier if I just run away apologetically. Um, so I am very, very sorry, especially if you brought anything heavy here. And, um, and I promise I, I will be back. As any of you who have been at previous uh, Edinburgh Book Festivals know, well, one's with me at, um, there are always signings. I always sign till the last person. And next year, I will be back, and we'll throw on an extra signing just to make up for it. And I, I, I can always. And always, with, with an inducement, I can sort of, you know, forge Neil's <laughs> signature. I will teach him my signature before I leave. Right, Coraline. Ten years. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> well, I've got to say, I didn't think it. I didn't think it. Um, I read Coraline... Uh, when it first came out, and I read it to my kids, I read it to my daughter Katie, and I just found it astounding. The thing I found really astounding about it, if, if I'm going to be honest, let's be honest, um, 
there were no illustrations in the edition. And Neil was just telling me uh, about why that was, you know, that, that it came out without the illustrations. Um, and I sort of uh, read this book thinking, this is extraordinary. This is a wonderful, wonderful book. Ten years later, I was phoned up by Bloomsbury, one of these wonderful conversations where you're, you're phoned up and they say, do you think you might be free to illustrate Coraline by Neil Gaiman, you know, and, and, and you want to pause, you want to say, I'm very busy, my diary, consult my diary, and of course I never do. I say, yes, absolutely, and, and you know, I would love to, um, and it was an absolute joy, it was an absolute joy to do. The, the, the reason why, it was very weird, um, Coraline was originally, um, I sold it to Harper Collins in America, and, um, and I tried it out on a few friends who had kids, and one of the friends with kids was Dave McKean. So Dave read it to his daughter Yolanda, and she loved it so much she made him draw a mouse circus, a little mouse orchestra, um, as her birthday card invitation. The nice thing about having a dad who's an artist is you can demand personalized <laughs> birthday card illustrations. So, she, so her, the invitation to her birthday party was that, which then, having told Harper's that I'd love to get it illustrated, and I suggested Dave McKean, and they said he's too weird, and <laughs> he gave them the illustration he'd done for his daughter Yolanda, and he got the job. In the UK, the book was picked up by Bloomsbury. Um, and Chris has already heard this over dinner, because he I asked, love the story, actually, Neil. Yeah, wonderful. So, yeah. Um, but I, I, when I wrote the, wrote the book, my agent sent it out to a number of English publishers. And the year was 2001. And we got back pretty much word for word the same reply from about seven publishers. And what it said, each line said, uh, Dear Neil's agent, we are enormous fans of Neil. We read Caroline with delight. Oddly enough and coincidentally, we are starting a line of books of fantasy titles aimed at both children and adults. We would love Coraline to be our lead title for this line of books. We think it has the potential to be the new Harry Potter. <laughs> Signed, a publisher. And with, with, you know, with, with slight variant in phrases, that was the letter we got back from everybody except Bloomsbury. The letter from Bloomsbury came from a wonderful editor named Sarah Adedna, and she said, Dear Neil's, Neil Gaiman's um, agent, I have absolutely no idea who Neil Gaiman is. <laughs> um, but this book, Caroline, is absolutely wonderful. It, it was a terrific read. I kept reading, and I love it. We'd love to publish it. And I thought, that is the letter I wanted to read. And furthermore, there's nothing in there about it being the new Harry Potter, nor is this particular editor looking for the new Harry Potter, because she has the old Harry Potter. I was going to say, yes. <laughs> Which means 
that she is the only editor in England who will not be disappointed <laughs> when this book does not go on to sell hundreds of millions of copies. Um, so she published it. And her initial plan was to publish it without illustrations in, a, in paperback. And it only became a hardback because all over England, booksellers who had heard of me um, kept telling their Bloomsbury reps, will you tell them to bring out a hardback? We can sell them. Which is something that publishers quite like to hear and normally don't. It gave me goosebumps, I've got to say, when I heard that. You know, booksellers saying, we really want a more expensive edition, please. <laughs> <gasps> Wonderful. But they wouldn't put the illustrations in it, the Dave McKean illustrations, because they thought that English audiences, English readers, and Scottish readers undoubtedly, possibly Welsh, definitely the Cornish, would be <laughs> put off by an illustrated book. So the first edition that came out was this beautiful hardback with no illustrations at all. And then Bloomsbury, who were very perceptive, noticed that an awful lot of copies were being bought through Amazon.com from people in the UK who wanted their illustrated edition. So the paperback came out, and it was illustrated. And it was illustrated by Dave McKean. When we came to do the Graveyard book, we did two different editions, Chris's edition and Dave's edition. Extraordinary, quite extraordinary. Uh, Bloomsbury said, we're doing two editions. We're going to do an edition with Dave McKean. I thought, well, of course, of course, beautiful, fantastic. I love Dave's work on Coraline. In fact, that, that we'll get onto this a little bit later about the sort of, you know, uh, my approach to sort of Coraline having known and loved Dave's work on, on Coraline. Very strange position. But when the Graveyard book was mooted, um, they said, we want to do two editions. We want to do an... They didn't say an adult edition, but, but they said a sort of a, a, one edition and Dave will do the illustrations. I thought, that's great. I mean, we want you to do a sort of children's version. I thought, interesting, interesting. Graveyard book, sort of, uh, you know. And, and what Neil did was he sent me by email. It's possibly one of the most exciting emails I've ever got. Um, you know... Uh, alongside some of those sort of, you know, uh, recommendations for enlargements of various sort of, sort of <laughs> parts and whatever. Now, uh, this email arrived out of the blue because Bloomsbury said, you know, would you be interested in, this, in, in uh, illustrating this book? And I wanted to wait five minutes and consult my diary. I said, yes. And I got this email through. It, and it was the book. And I sat and I read this book on screen and was captivated from the very first sentence. And as an illustrator, this is what one dreams of, you know, the, 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 the text that invites you in and invites you to visualize. And uh, Most illustrators are readers, you know. I mean, we, we, we love words, we love working with words, we want to interpret words in our own way, but we love writers and we love writers who sort of, you know, write beautifully. Neil's text came through, it was fantastic. I read it in one sitting and I thought, fantastic. What a brilliant thing. My agent said, I don't know Neil very well. I'm not sure what he's like. And I thought, oh, dear. OK, I've got this lovely text. He could be a nightmare to work with. He could say, I want this, I want that. You've got to do this. This character's got to look this way. Can you turn him 360 degrees round and give him a top hat? And I was quite prepared, because the text was so brilliant, to do all of that. 
And I emailed Neil back and said, this is great, I'd love to do this book. And Neil said, yes, do whatever you would like to do. And off I went. I did roughs, it went through to Neil. Neil said, that's fine. I went on. I had one correction. There, the was, there was only one, that, and, and it was the only thing. You sent everything through, and I said, everything's perfect. Give Silas dark hair. Your first sketches ah, of Silas, he yes, was blonde. Yes, and I said, interesting, no. yeah, yeah. And that was, I think, I, that was my entire, every, everything, that was my notes. Um, pretty good note, pretty good note, I think, because it turned him into someone quite different, you know. It gave him a whole <laughs> other vibe. I liked it. Um, but... What an easy author to work. I've worked with some very difficult authors. In fact, authors, you know, there's a reason why people become writers. It's often they have difficult childhoods. They have personal <laughs> issues. You know, they're, they're also... Because that gives them something to write about. You know, illustrators, we're very normal, nice people. <laughs> because we have to work with writers. You know, this is how it works. I was astounded. Neil is the easiest, the nicest person to work with, and the most permissive. But I think that's because, you know, I think, you know, for you, with your background in, in, in comics, you've worked with lots and lots of artists, and there is a visual quality to, to, think, to what you do. I think a lot of that um, comes from years of writing comics, and years of writing comics where one of my rules with writing comics was always the idea that if it didn't look right, then I hadn't explained it properly to the artist. It was my fault. So my job was to describe something properly, to get it into an artist's head, to get the thing. But then I also figured that the, the hardest job and the thing that would really make me look good um, was just finding the right artist for the right project. And then you look brilliant. Um, it, it's the same with, you know, the secret of, of movies sometimes is just casting. If you cast the right actor, everybody thinks that you're brilliant, and really you aren't. You just cast the right person. So I think that's, that was always, um, I do write visually, but then going and finding the right artist who's going to bring that out makes me look so clever, and I love that. <laughs> you know, it works both ways, don't you? You know, I, I feel terribly clever. You know, uh, when Neil talks about these things, and I've done some illustrations, possibly the easiest commissions I've ever had have been, and I hesitate to say this because my my sort of uh, publisher is here somewhere. But yeah, actually, it was really difficult, and I worked very hard, and it took a long time, <laughs> very very difficult. But no, actually, it was it was a dream job, and it was so easy to do in that sense because this was this was wonderful work. Um, I've got to say, actually, Neil, that the, the, what I find about your writing, and this, 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 this comes through as I, I, I was thinking of the things to illustrate. In fact, one full page per chapter. Not enough, by the way. Oh, it's my publisher here. You know, not enough. But anyway, you know, it's edited down. It's, it's lovely. Uh, but the way you write, I think, there is a real relish for storytelling. And I think there is this notion of the voice, the, the storytelling voice um, that engages and takes you along, and, and that I found captivating. You know, when, when, when I began reading, I realized that there is a compact you have uh, as a reader with a writer where you want to trust them. You want to begin with the first sentence. You've got to think, well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by this. I'm not quite sure where you're going, but I sort of trust mm. that you're going to tell me. You're going to allow me to go with you. And it's that sort of trust relationship that's I, very I, interesting. I, I actually remember being 
up on this, in, on this little podium in this tent a few years ago, and I, and I tried to explain to an audience the, the, the relationship of the reader with the writer from my perspective, because in, in my head, it's as if I'm saying to somebody, look, we're going to go on a journey together, and you're safe with me, and just hold my hand, and we're going to walk together into a dark forest. And then I hold their hands, and we walk into the dark forest, and then I let go and run away. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> and that, that is the relationship of the author to the reader. That Suddenly they're going, oh, where am I? I didn't think it was going to get here. And, oh, no, but buttons. then the expectation you come around again and say, OK. And I'll then you'll come back and say, it's OK, yes, I'll take you yes. out of it. And I think it is that, you know, when you get to the end of the story, there is that wonderful, almost the sigh, the sigh of contentment at a story well told, where you get to the end and you say, right, I now I see how this has unfolded. Well, I think with something like Coraline, it was very easy for me because the voice of Coraline is a very clean, um, classic British storytelling voice. It, it's very clean, it's very classic. Um, I wrote Coraline up to about there in about 1991 and came back to it around here in 1998 when I was trying to finish it in my own time and I didn't have any own time. So instead of reading before I went to sleep, I would write 50 words of Caroline every well, night. And what, what, what happened but it, but in the intervening sort of period? When, I moved to America. I, I started writing it for my daughter, Holly, because Holly, who is now 26 and 27, um, and, and I was about to say perfectly normal, but, <laughs> um, but definitely, at the time, she was, when she was four, she was Wednesday Adams. Um, now she's big and cheerful and funny and she makes hats and she's definitely not Wednesday Adams. But when she was four, she would come home from kindergarten and climb on my lap and dictate stories in which small girls, very often named Holly, <laughs> would come home and find their mothers were not their mothers but evil witches who had very often who would then imprison them in dark places. And then they'd have to get out, and there would be flying babies coming after them, and they'd have to get to their bicycles, and then the witches would take them to America. And they were, these, they were just the this, this stuff of pure nightmare. <laughs> and I remember going down to my local bookshop, which was in Uckfield, Sussex, and saying to the people in the local bookshop in Uckfield, do you, what, do you, what have you got in the way of really weird horror for four or five-year-olds? <laughs> um, and they gave me a look as if I'd asked for ways to you know, cook and eat four and five-year-olds. And, I, and I, I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to write Holly a book that she'll like, I'm, it, you know, if she's going to get this book, I'm going to have to write it. And she loves this stuff, so I will write a book for Holly that's filled with Holly stuff. And I wrote it um, in my own time, but I, I wrote it fairly solidly for about six, eight months. And then we moved to America. And for years, 
I didn't have any of my own time to write in. Any time I had to write in, I was writing Sandman, or I was writing a short story, or, or I was writing Neverwhere, or I was write, balancing all of those things. Then, but I really missed this story, and, and I had the beginning of it, and I knew how it ended. So I sent it to an editor named Jennifer Hershey, and I said, will you read this? And she read the first third, which was what existed, and she said, this is great. What happens next? And I said, send me a contract, and we will both find out. <laughs> but at the same time, actually, Neil, I'm a great believer in this, that this notion of having ideas, developing things at different stages, putting them away. I have a drawer. I have a drawer at the bottom of my plan chest, 18-drawer um, plan chest, the very bottom drawer. It's where I put those great ideas I have, those fantastic ideas that don't quite see the light of day. And I put them away there, and I shut them away. And they, they stay there in the dark, and they marinate, I hope. And then one day, one bright morning, I'll come and sort of open the 18th drawer and, and, and look in, and suddenly I will pick up that story and say, you know, that's not half bad. I could do something with it. Or I take out the story and think, that was terrible. What was I thinking? I'll put it back in and hope it marinates more. But it's very interesting, actually, so putting, you know, uh, putting something on hold and then coming back to it later with all the experiences you've had in between and then suddenly thinking, yes, this is a start. could be a contract that, that, that well, gets the, you going. The but. Graveyard Book was an idea I had when my son Mike was a two-year-old pedaling around a graveyard on his tricycle. And, um, and I kept trying to write it. Every, every few years, I'd mm. write a page or so and go, ah, this doesn't work. And it wasn't until I finished it that I realized that the most important thing was that I was old enough. I'd, I'd actually gone through the whole parenting cycle. And it's a book that you have to have been a parent. You have to get to the end of being a parent and get to the point where the child leaves um, because that's the cycle of the graveyard book. And I wouldn't have known that, I think, when I was just the father of a, of a two-year-old. I love conversations like this, particularly when my publisher is listening, because, you know, we can't be rushed. <laughs> Deadlines. Please. You know, yeah, thank you. Uh, and if it's going to take 10 years, it's going to take 10 years. Uh, I think the difference, I suppose, from, from many of us and from you, Neil, is, is that when it arrives, my goodness, you know, Coraline, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And I think this is, that's what I find so interesting, in a sense, is, is the gestation period and then how it finally arrived, that, that, that sort of the final part after the interregnum when you then started to write. And, and when did you know you'd, you'd got the ending? When did you see the ending in sight? I, I peculiarly, I, I'm normally rubbish at endings, but with, with Caroline, I knew that you were going to get the hand down the well from the very beginning. So mm. I put the well in on page one and was very really? proud of uh -huh. myself. Um, but I, I actually, once I'd written Caroline and it went out, Sarah Dedner, again at Bloomsbury, um, read it and said, but there's a chapter missing. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you don't actually address the other father. He just sort of goes off stage, and you never see him again. And I said, well, actually, I know what happens in that chapter, but I thought it was too scary to write. And she said, oh, no, I'll put it in. So I went and I wrote the chapter where she goes down into the cellar, and she actually rips off the button, and he's pursuing her. And, um, and then we were done. 
So, and I knew at the moment where that chapter was handed in that it was, it was finished. The father is a sort of secondary figure, isn't he, in a way? The, the mother figure is, is central, which, which I think is part of the power of the story. The father is almost like a creature of the mother. Oh, he, well, he's completely... The other father is definitely just... He's just yeah. one of these shadow puppets. Yeah, I don't um, understand that, obviously, from my perspective. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> ring true. Um. <laughs> I, I, I think they, I mean, there are very few places that I can point to and say this is where it came from. Um, Holly's strange stories um, were definitely one of the places. Another was a very, very odd um, Victorian writer named Lucy Clifford. Has anyone here heard of Lucy Clifford? Good. You are typical. Lucy, Google it. I'm going to. Lucy Clifford and is almost she's a very, very odd writer. Um, and her books are pretty much forgotten. And they were strange. Um, they'd have titles like Wooden Tony. And um, one of her stories, probably her best-known story, was called The New Mother. And I will tell you very briefly the story of The New Mother. Um, these two children named, if memory serves, Blue Eyes and Turkey, um, go off into the town and they see a wild child playing an instrument which it calls a pear drum. And it says there are little people inside and you can see them. And, but she'll only play the pear drum for them and let her, them see the little people inside if they're really naughty. So they go home and they're naughty. And their mother says to them, do not be naughty, because if you keep being naughty, I will have to go away, and your new mother will come. And she won't be like me. She'll have a wooden tail and glass eyes. But the children really want to play with the pear drum, see the pear drum, so they go back in and they talk to the girl, and they say, were we naughty enough? And she says, no, you must be naughtier. And she goes back, and the, the kids go back, and they're, they're terribly naughty, and they push things over, and their mother says, oh... You, you really, you know, you're doing the wrong thing here. And then the children go back to the town center and they see the kid again. They say, well, were we naughty enough? And she says, no, you weren't. And I'm going away now. And she goes away. And they go home. And their mother's gone. And then they hear coming down the path. They look down and from far away they can see the sunlight, the setting sun flashing off the glass eyes of their new mother and they hear the swish, swish, swish of her wooden tail. And they go and live in the woods. <laughs> um, and standard children's fiction circa 1883. Um, you read things like that and it stays with you. And I thought, why, doesn't people, why don't people write things like that these just, days? So that di I think I'm surprised, Neil, that the Uckfield bookseller didn't say, we have an edition over here. Uh, Please. <laughs> These days, you can find it on the internet with Project Gutenberg and stuff. At that time, it was, it was a ridiculous amount of money. Shall we try and do our, our party trick, our unrehearsed party trick? It we, could end in disaster. Yes, we, we have it. an let's unrehearsed party trick that we have decided to do over dinner. It's amazing what a couple of glasses of Rioja will do. I almost <laughs> couldn't say Rioja there, did you notice? Um, let's have a go. I, I, this is an honor for me to actually illustrate live as Neil reads a passage, this is going to be fun. I like that sound. <laughs> so I'm going to read you 
sum of oh, chapter three. The old black key felt colder than any of the others. She pushed it into the keyhole. It turned smoothly with a satisfying clunk. Coraline stopped and listened. She knew she was doing something wrong, and she was trying to listen for her mother coming back, but she heard nothing. And Coraline put her hand on the doorknob and turned it, and finally she opened the door. It opened onto a dark hallway. The bricks had gone as if they'd never been there. There was a cold, musty smell coming through the open doorway. It smelled like something very old and very slow. Coraline went through the door. She wondered what the empty flat would be like if that was where the corridor led. Coraline walked down the corridor uneasily. There was something very familiar about it. The carpet beneath her feet was the same carpet they had in their flat. The wallpaper was the same wallpaper they had. The picture hanging in the hall was the same that they had hanging in their hallway at home. She knew where she was. She was in her own home. She hadn't left. She shook her head, confused. She stared at the picture hanging on the wall. No, it wasn't exactly the same. The picture they had in their own hallway showed a boy in old-fashioned clothes staring at some bubbles. But now the expression on his face was different. He was looking at the bubbles as if he was planning to do something very nasty indeed to them. And there was something peculiar about his eyes. Coraline stared at his eyes, trying to work out what exactly was different. She almost had it when somebody said, Coraline. It sounded like her mother. Coraline went into the kitchen where the voice had come from. A woman stood in the kitchen with her back to Coraline. She looked a little like Coraline's mother, only, only her skin was white as paper. Only she was taller and thinner. Only her fingers were too long and they never stopped moving. And her dark red fingernails were curved and sharp. Coraline, the woman said, is that you? And then she turned around. Her eyes were big, black buttons. Lunchtime, Coraline, said the woman. Who are you? Asked Coraline. I'm your other mother, said the woman. Go and tell your other father that lunch is ready. She opened the door of the oven. Suddenly Coraline realized how hungry she was. It smelled wonderful. Well, go on. Caroline went down the hall to where her father's study was. She opened the door. There was a man in there sitting at the keyboard with his back to her. Hello, said Caroline. I, I mean, she said to say that lunch is ready. The man turned round. His eyes were buttons, big and black and shiny. Hello, Caroline, he said. I'm starving. He got up and went with her into the kitchen. They sat at the kitchen table, and Coraline's other mother brought them lunch. A huge, golden-brown roasted chicken, fried potatoes, tiny green peas. Coraline shoveled the food into her mouth. It tasted wonderful. We've been waiting for you for a long time, said Coraline's other father. For me? Yes, 
said the other mother. It wasn't the same here without you. But we knew you'd arrive one day, and then we could be a proper family. Would you like some more chicken? Okay. <laughs> Would you like some more chicken? That's very sinister. That, that's the most sinister way I've ever heard that sort of read. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> I love, I've I got to say, I love the way that you've taken both um, what Dave did and then taken what Henry Selleck did in the film. It's and sort of accepted yeah. that both of these in interpretations of Caroline have happened and then done your own but without pretending that you're the first person to do Coraline. It's, well, you it's can't, sort of... you can't. I mean, there's a spectrum, isn't there? And I, I, I think when I first sort of decided, you know, what I wanted to be was an illustrator, uh, I was under no misapprehension. For me, the primacy is always the text. It, it, it's the words. The words are important. The illustration accompanies the text. Great illustrations are okay, but they won't work if the text isn't fantastic. So the, 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 the stories we remember are the stories, not the pictures. That, that's, that's my thesis as an illustrator. So what you want to work with is great pictures. Now, many, many illustrators can interpret great text. So you've got Alice in Wonderland, you've got um, Wind in the Willows, you've got all sorts of wonderful sort of uh, stories that can be interpreted by many, many illustrators. And, and our job, in a sense, is to try and make them our own. What one can't do, in a way, is pretend you're the first one who's ever done them. And so I was aware of the uh, wonderful stuff that, 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 that Dave had done with, with, uh, with Coraline. Uh, and that was what I was familiar with. And then I remember going to, you invited me along to the film premiere of Coraline in London, uh, a lovely exclusive uh, uh, screening. You're going to tell it's an exclusive screening because it's, it, it's in one of these sort of little private theatres where the seats are extra plush. And you sit back and they're really soft. And I remember sitting down thinking, wow, this is a bit showbiz. Uh, and there were lots of people all sitting around us. And Neil came in and very nicely looked and scanned the people waiting to see, see the, the preview. I haven't told you this, Neil. Uh, he came in and scanned everyone. And our eyes met. Across it, <laughs> and I waved. I waved. I thought, how nice! And, and Neil waved. It was so nice. And then I saw that slight reaction you get, where you realise that actually someone's looking over your head. <laughs> and I turned around behind me, and there was Jonathan Ross and his lovely family, and they were waving. I, uh, <laughs> I know it's. You were. Lovely to me afterwards. Anyway, but but you know, I, I you felt know, it's, that it's connection. The, it's the incredible red hair. Of, of <laughs> you ben can't Goldman. miss it. You I, can't that's miss it. That's actually something that's that you right. notice. Um, the sweaty fat man in front. No, <laughs> who is he? What's he doing? Um, that said, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off the point. But but um, the point, in a sense, in the spectrum, Dave McKean's work is visceral and wonderful and vibrant, and I love it. The uh, Henry Selig's of uh, work was beautiful in the way that it was constructed, and that is a beautiful film. It is, it's an elegant 
um, wonderful sort of conceit, and it, it works with the text so well. What I felt when, when I was given the, the text, that what I needed to do, in a sense, was bring it to somewhere else, which is where I live, in a sense, which is something traditional, but something within a tradition of children's book illustration that, that I sort of, you know, look back to Tenniel or William Heath Robinson or E.H. Shepherd, the wonderful English tradition of black and white illustration. And I'm at sort of, you know, this end and all these great people are at the other. But I felt very, very sort of privileged to be able to work with what I consider a classic text. And so what I wanted to do is something that, that was traditional, that, that, that would, you know, catch a modern sort of child's imagination and not necessarily challenge them too much that would be sort of pretty and accessible, but allow the strangeness of, of the story, the really, you know, the, I think the power of your story to come through. And I loved your reading. I loved the chicken. I loved the chicken to that. You know, that is where the power lies. And all I needed to do was make sure I got the buttons right and I got the setting right and it, it worked. So it was an absolute dream job. We should probably do questions and answers. You lot can do the questions. <laughs> um, hand over there, yes. Hang on, there, a microphone will arrive with you in moments, Hello? mysteriously. There. Hello. Hi, Neil. <laughs> um, my question is to both of you. Um, I remember last year when you were talking about American Gods, you said that um, you had in your mind a lot um, what Shadow was doing still after the novel and stuff like that. And I was thinking about Coraline, now it's 10 years after what, what age she'd be and, and what you think that she'd be doing now. You know, if Coraline is, is incredibly frustrating from my point of view because there is nothing that um, any publisher in the world would, would like more than me turning around saying, Coraline too. <laughs> the other mother strikes back. <laughs> um, and it never, it never turns up in my head. As far as I'm concerned, that book ends as, as the mouse orchestra plays, little mouse, mouse circus noises, and, and summer is done, and it stops. And I would love. And yet it doesn't, you see. I'm going to contradict Neil Go for it. here. I'm going to contradict uh, Neil, because I like contradicting writers. Um, it doesn't, because I see the Graveyard Book in the same you know, context as, as Coraline. And I love books that are themselves. You know, that, that, that they are beautifully realized things. The notion of the trilogy or the series or the, you know, there is a certain dead hand sometimes in that. Beautiful novels that are constructed brilliantly can live as their own thing, but you want another and another. And I think the Graveyard Book works beautifully next to Coraline on the shelf. And I'm looking forward to the next one. There should be another one. We want a trilogy, but it'll be different. It'll be completely different. It'll be something else. But it'll work in, in, in that context. <laughs> we've, got, we've got some small people here. Yes, you. You're, you're a small person with your hand up. Um, somebody's going to hand you a microphone. Uh, when, um, when did you start writing books? Um, I started writing books. The, the first time I ever wrote a book, um, I was about 21, maybe 22. And um, 
it was a children's book. It was called My Great Aunt Ermintrude, and I handwrote it. And while I was handwriting it, I decided to teach myself to type. So I got a book on how to type with something that we used to have back then called a typewriter. <laughs> and, um, and I started teaching myself to type. And I'd do a lesson a night, and I'd also write this book. And then I finished handwriting the book before I'd finished learning to type. So I just started typing the book anyway, which means I'm something like a seven-fingered typist, um, which you're not meant to be. Um, and I still sort of have to hunt and peck for the letters that weren't actually in the lessons that I got up to <laughs> after 30-something years. Um, and uh, it was a book. I wrote it. I sent it out to a publisher or two. It came back um, with a note saying it was very good but not quite right. And uh, from there, I put it in the attic. And once Caroline came out, I was reading books every night to my daughter Maddie. She was about seven or eight. I thought, I've got that children's book up in the attic. I'll read that to her. And if it's any good, I'll just tidy it up a little bit and send it off to my publisher, and I'll have another children's book out. And I brought it down, and I read it to Maddie, and put it up in the attic again. <laughs> so that was, that was when I started, and that was what happened to my first book. It's still in the attic. Um, let's see. Uh, hand up there at the back. We haven't... Yes. Hi there. Um, I work in schools with kids, obviously. Um, and uh, I'm a school librarian. And Coraline is a book that gets stolen a lot. <laughs> because they, they adore it. And it's really lovely when they go, Miss, Miss, have you got that book? I read it when it was me. And there are buttons and this lady. And you're like, yes, yes, I have that. Um, but what I want to know is how it feels to know that in 20 or 30 or 40 years, there are going to be, there are going to be adults who say that Caroline was their favourite book when they were a kid. It's, their, it's going to be their, their Winnie the Pooh or their um, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe it's go or their Harry Potter or whatever. It's going to be the book that really got to them and, and made them love reading and made them steal it from my library. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, the, the truth is, it's already happening. It's not... 20 years, because what, what I'm starting to see now, which is intensely off-putting, um, is young ladies of marriageable and breeding age, um, you know, with, with, with legs and shoes and properly dressed and everything, um, who, when I tell them, when they, when they know who I am, come over and suddenly turn into the 11-year-olds that they were 10 years ago when they read Caroline and start telling me how thinking about Caroline being brave got them through incredibly tough times. And um, so it's, it's and normally they are surprised that I'm not very, very much older than I am. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's, it does happen now. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I love, one of the things I love best about doing the children's fiction, as well as doing adult fiction, as, doing every, as well as doing everything else, but the children's fiction does have this weird kind of cultural power to it, as yeah. you run into people who 
have somehow been changed. And it is this notion, I mean, you know, what is a classic? You know, when does something become a classic? You know, does it become a classic next, you know, in a year of publication? Probably not. Does it become a classic five years, ten years? Who knows? Quite interesting with Coraline, I, I felt, you know, when I was asked to illustrate it, I thought, yes, this is a classic. You know, sometimes you need permission to sort of feel that. Ten years, I thought, yes, it is. Um, because there is a consensus, because it's reached people. In publishing, there's always this sort of sense of where to next, you know, a herd instinct, you know, and it's understandable. Writers need to earn a living. Illustrators need to illustrate popular books. We want to be in work, so something comes out, uh, you know, someone's seen Battle Royale, decided to write a lovely novel about it, and suddenly everyone's doing dystopian fiction, you know. And that's lovely, you know, and off we go and whatever. But in a sense, I can get shopworn quite quickly. But there are certain books that are outside the mainstream. They don't, you know, look at what's going on and decide that's what we're going to. They come from somewhere else, and it's often very personal. I, I, I'm fascinated when I meet authors I, 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 and writers, and I, I talk to them to find out where these things come from. And it's endlessly fascinating to try and sort of piece that together. Coraline came from I don't know where. You know, a fascinating place. And it's captured our imagination, and it's growing, and it's not going to disappear when people decide that um, we don't want stories about people with button eyes. That's not going to happen. You know, it is its own thing. It's unique, and and I love that. Um, and I think that's where some of the best storytelling, some of the best writing comes from. It comes from a personal place. I asked Neil at uh, at supper. I said, look the button eyes, I've got to ask you, where did that come from? And Neil couldn't really tell me. And I thought, that's fantastic. Because who knows where it came from? But it's, the, it's iconic, and it's fascinating. And the fact that we don't know where it comes from gives it, it its power. I do power. know where the bricked up door came from. Tell us. I stole, I, the, the bricked up door was actually stolen from the house that I grew up in, um, which had once been two houses. And uh, when, when they split the house, it didn't quite split evenly. And uh, we, our, our family lived in what, what had obviously once been the servant side of things, but we got one posh room. <laughs> but the one posh room had two doors, um, a door where the servants came in and out, and a door where the family would have come in and out. And um, the door where the family came in and out, you open it up, and it's just a brick wall proper red bricks, you know, and mortar and everything. And I was convinced that it wasn't really always a brick wall. And I actually used to sneak up on it. <laughs> um, you can sneak up on a door by going like this. <laughs> Which I would, age seven, I would do. And, uh, and it was always a door, ex uh, brick wall, except once I dreamed that I could go through it. So I knew it had to really be a corridor. And that, that, that one just sort of stayed with me when I came to write. I love this. Corridor. I love this. Because writers are often subject to writer's block and stuff. I love the notion that a bricked up wall could be the start of something tremendously creative. Actually a way into a whole other story. We've got time for a couple more questions. Um, you, there, yes. Brown dress, long pigtail. 
was going to ask, what's your favourite book that you've written so far? I don't think, I think there's quite a lot of them, so you don't need to think about all of them. But. Okay, I'll, t I'll tell you what my favourite is, and then Chris will tell you what his favourite of his books is. Um, my favourite book that I've written so far, I think right now, is a toss-up. There's two books that it could be. Um, one is the silliest book that I've ever written, which is called Fortunately the Milk, which is about how somebody's dad goes out for milk and saves the world. Um, which will come out next year. Um, and the other is a book which is probably going to be called The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is a grown-up book. And um, it, it, it's really weird because it's a grown-up book except that the hero is seven years old and um, is dealing with... An, strange, scary creatures from outside of space and time and being helped by the three old ladies who live down at the end of the lane. Um, well, one, of, one very, very old lady and one middle-aged lady and one girl who looks about 11. That may have been 11 for a very long time indeed. Um, but it is an adult book and it's got some very, very scary stuff in it. Um, and that'll be out next summer as well. And I love them because they're my, my newest books, and I'm proud of them, and nobody else has got to see them. And they're my babies. So right now, they're my favorites. Um, but it's always like that. And, and normally, it's even worse when I'm actually writing something, because I'm either completely in love with it or I hate it, and I think it's the worst thing anybody's ever written. And probably I should give up writing and be a gardener. <laughs> which would be rotten because I'm a lousy gardener. That's uncanny, actually, Neil, because uh, I think I'm with you on this. Uh, my favorite book at the moment is one I've just written. Um, it's at my publisher now. I've just designed the pages. I know oh, I'm going to go away after Edinburgh and start the illustrations, but no one's seen it uh, yet. Um, it's a work of unparalleled genius and insight. Um, <laughs> It's a gothic novel for eight-year-olds. Uh, it's called Goth Girl. It's about the uh, young and rather ignored daughter of the most famous poet in England, who is a dashing, uh, good-looking um, sort of poet with a very bad reputation. Um, he's called Lord Goth. He lives in this enormous country house. Uh, he, he's the foremost bicycling poet in England. Um, he, because it's in the Regency period, he enjoys um, riding hobby horses, this early form of bicycle with no pedals, where you have to sort of, you know, propel yourself. yourself. Uh, he has a, a, a wonderful hobby horse that he, he goes around the grounds of his country house with a blunderbuss um, on his hobby horse, and he enjoys taking pot shots at his garden ornaments uh, with his blunderbuss. And he is, he's got a terrible reputation. He is, you know, his devil-may-care sort of character. And it's said of him that uh, Lord Goth, he's mad, bad, and dangerous to gnomes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Thank you. A lovely audience. That was my pitch to my publisher, actually. And they, they said, yeah, oh, go ahead, write it, write it. So that's my favourite at the moment. <laughs> 
And we are at, la if we do it really, really quickly, we have one last question and one last answer, I think. Um, oh, look, there are two hands up there, Neil. And, and you're jumping. <laughs> yes. I, I, you've got to get it. It's just the jumping, honestly. Either you desperately need to go to the toilet or... <laughs> yes. What gave you the inspiration to write Odds and the Frost Giants? Uh, what gave me the inspiration to write Odd and the Frost Giants was I got a phone call from um, Bloomsbury saying, would you like to write a 15,000 word novel, which is very short for a novel, for World Book Day to be given away free for nothing? Um, and I said, okay. Because um, I thought what I'd do is give them a chapter of the, um, the graveyard book. And then the deadline started approaching, and they phoned me up, and they said, well, so what are you going to do for this novel? I, thought, I said, well, I'll give you a chapter of the graveyard book. They said, no, it has to be something new. I went, oh. <laughs> um, and um, I had a thing in my head from when I went to Norway. Um, it was just a, a fraction of an idea about Loki and Thor and Odin being turned into um, a fox and a bear and an eagle and a kid who could barely walk going with them to save Asgard and get them back into their true forms. And, I, and it wasn't really, I didn't have any more of it than that. I had these characters. But I also had a 15,000 word novel um, that was due to be published for free and given to every child in England for World Book Day. And I didn't have anything else. <laughs> so I started writing it. And it kind of wrote itself. You know, people, sometimes writers say, well, it wrote itself. And, and mostly it, it doesn't. You do it and it's really hard and you put one word after another and you sweat blood and you drink tea and... <laughs> You have ridiculously long bars, and you're <laughs> grumpy, and you don't write it, and, and all those things. But with that one, I, uh, I wrote it really fast. I enjoyed writing it, except for the bit where I left chapter three on a plane <laughs> in a notebook and never saw it again, so I had to write a completely different chapter three. And I'm still convinced there were really good lines in the original chapter three that aren't in the current one. I, I went to my local odd bins a few years ago um, and found a wonderful bottle of Australian Sauvignon, um, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, beautiful sort of um, bottle. Uh, but I was absolutely captivated by the label, you know, these lovely labels they have, uh, because I work with a lot of writers. And it was this beautiful sort of 14% full-bodied red wine called Writer's Block. <laughs> and I bought a case, and every so often I do give it to various writers I know, if they're experiencing difficulty. It's that little sort of nudge they need. Um, I, I love that, because people are always writing to me and saying, what do I do about writer's block? And now I can say, you drink it. It's delicious. <laughs> delicious. <laughs> it's time. That's our signal. <laughs> So, uh, so apparently they send them over to signal when your time is up. <laughs> uh, 
that was our plane. Um, so you may as well stay inside. <laughs> Before I go, I will teach him my signature. He is an artist. It will be indistinguishable. Um, of course, I'll spell Neil wrong, but, but that's for the book collectors. It'll be, it'll be worth a lot. Nell Gaiman. Perfect. <laughs> I remember when Maddie, my daughter, watched me signing a bunch of book, pieces of paper that were going to go into books, and she said, came over and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm signing my name. She said, why are you writing Nell Gurgle? Then? <laughs> and I said, because I'm not writing your game. But it, she said, it looks like Nell Gurgle. She said, can I sign some? And I said, no. <laughs> it has to be me. She said, I could write Nell Gurgle. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.